Alex Bird. The way we pay for things changes regularly. Checkbooks have been replaced by magnetic stripes and chip and pin. These could soon be on the way out too, as contactless payment methods become more widespread. Bitcoin is something entirely different altogether. It is at the vanguard of a new form of cryptocurrencies that exist outside of national, state-controlled monetary systems. It is supported by peer-to-peer -peer networks, turning personal computers into mints, and has been making headlines since the start of the year. I'm in Oxford at the Internet Institute to talk to Vili Ledonverta, a research fellow here and an expert in all things Bitcoin. He will discuss the origins and development of the new technology, its connections with the shady sides of the internet, and if it can become mainstream. He began by explaining the fundamentals of how the system works. All right, so well, Bitcoin is a, what some people call a digital currency that is distributed. So normally in a digital currency, we'll have some kind of a central ledger, a central database where all the account balances are held and all the transactions are recorded. And transactions would normally be carried out by um, simply changing the account balances in the central database. Um, and the centralized model, of course, um, has the problem that for whatever reason, if the central database is compromised from outside or the authority that manages the central database wants to mess with it, they can essentially do that. Um, well, the way Bitcoin works is that the database is distributed. It's a peer-to-peer -peer network where everyone who uses the currency participates in the network and holds a copy of the entire transaction ledger from since the currency was first started. So the database is distributed and um, with clever use of some cryptography, it's ensured that you can only spend your own money. If you try to spend money that doesn't belong to you or do some other unauthorized um, transactions like create new money from scratch in a, in a way that's not allowed, all the other clients connected to that peer-to-peer -peer network will notice that and they will not pass your transaction along to others. So that's essentially how Bitcoin differs from your ordinary centralized digital currency. And that's also it's one of its main selling points, that it's secure against, in a way, hacking, but also it's secure against any centralized authority misusing their power to manage the, the currency. Okay, so whereas in kind of with traditional, like tangible, currency have a central bank that is responsible for the value of the currency and distributing the currency, whereas in Bitcoin, everyone knows how much there is and everyone knows how much everyone has. Yes, well, I wouldn't use the word tangible currency to, to refer to euros or pounds because most of them are uh, digital records exactly in the same way as these private digital currencies are. But the only difference really is that pound is a national currency. Its status is is upheld by law, whereas these uh, many digital currencies like Bitcoin, they're private currencies. So they can make that's the the words the terminology I use: national and currency or private currency. All right. Uh, so the money in my pocket and in my account is national, but Bitcoin is private. Explain how the supply of money differs between the two. Well, yeah, in a national currency, usually you have then a central bank that manages the size of the money supply. 
um, by various means. Uh, the most, the bluntest means, of course, to simply just issue new money or withdraw money from circulation to reduce the size of the money supply, because we most of the money actually that is, you know, uh, circulating in a national economy is not central bank money as such, but uh, commercial bank money. So money that's created by private banks when they take deposits and then lend that money on. So, and, and obviously central banks then use things like reserve ratio requirements and lending rates to, to manage, to, to influence the size of the money supply created by, by private banks. But so the main difference then to, to Bitcoin well, here are two differences already. One is that there is no central bank that could manage the size of the money supply. And the second difference is that, at least for now, there are no banks operating with Bitcoin. So there's no private uh, commercial bank money being created by lending. So without a central body managing the amount of money in the system, how is new currency created and circulated in Bitcoin? It's a really clever system. So there's an algorithm built into the system, an algorithm that's embedded into each and every client in the Bitcoin peer-to-peer network. And that algorithm basically says that you can create new money by mining, which and mining essentially means expanding a lot of computational power, computing resources to try to solve a very hard mathematical problem. If you succeed in solving that problem and you send a proof of work to the network and all the other clients will check that proof of work and if it checks out that you've really done this thing, you've found this uh, solution, this, this arbitrary mathematical problem, then you're allowed to claim an amount of new currency. And that's the way new currency enters the Bitcoin. Uh, money supply. The clever bit in the algorithm is that the difficulty of that problem depends on the amount of bitcoins already in circulation. And so it's designed in such a way that the more bitcoins there are, the harder it becomes to mine more. Until eventually there will there will be around 20 million bitcoins in circulation. And then after that it's just too difficult to find anymore and this most of these most of these bitcoins will have been discovered by 2030 so the number of bitcoins in circulation depends only on time so the algorithm is built in such a way that at a certain point in time in a certain year you're going to have approximately a certain number of bitcoins in circulation because the algorithm manages the difficulty level of mining so as to make that happen currently there are about 11 million in circulation okay and bitcoin started in circulation in 2009 it started it became into being and then we're already kind of at halfway towards the total right in order to mine more your computer has to expend computational power so if you have that's the, right so the bigger and better your computer the faster you mine that's correct although now because the mining has become so difficult already because there's so many coins in circulation that an ordinary desktop computer is not really viable anymore so what happens if you try to use your ordinary desktop computer to mine them you're actually going to spend 
more money on the electricity that that computer consumes than you earn from uh, the bitcoins that you mine. So now people are investing into these special purpose devices that are, they're not uh, universal computers like desktop computers. They are computational devices designed to do nothing else but solve this mathematical problem that the Bitcoin algorithm presents. And they, because of that, they can do that more efficiently, expend less energy to find Bitcoins. And this is the way Bitcoins are mined today. It's gone to such a kind of people have purpose-built machines. Exactly, yes. Surely the cost of creating these machines will kind of outweigh the value of the Bitcoins. Yes, there's a, I'm not an expert on this, but my, my impression is that it's not clear at all whether people who are buying these machines will ever recoup the cost because it depends on a lot of factors. Obviously, it depends on what will the uh, value of Bitcoin be in time because if the value of Bitcoin increases significantly then might, these machines might be a great investment if not they might never pay themselves back because there's still the cost of electricity and so on and so um, what is sure though is the companies that manufacture these machines are <laughs> making a killing yeah, we mentioned that it came into being in 2009 but who was it that is responsible for coming up with this idea it's obviously a very complex and well thought out idea where did it come from well this is the of course the funny thing that bitcoin has a kind of mythical beginning so it was first initiated designed created by a mysterious person called satoshi nakamoto a paper a sort of scientifically presented paper authored by satoshi nakamoto appeared on the internet and the code base uh, was also established by the same person but no one really knows who this Nakamoto is uh, where the name would suggest that it is a Japanese man but uh, I doubt that I've, I've lived in Japan for many years and, and reading this uh, Nakamoto's texts doesn't give you the impression that he's Japanese uh, it could even be a group of people behind this and so on Satoshi Nakamoto, after making the initial contributions and setting this uh, whole community in motion that then started to maintain the code base and the peer-to-peer network, um, he sort of disappeared. He said that he's moved on to other projects and no one's heard from him since. But of course, it's expected that he would he would be holding on to quite a big stash of bitcoins himself because he was mining them when it first started, when the algorithm was first initiated, at which point it was still very easy, comparatively speaking, compared to do it was very easy to mine large amounts of Bitcoin. So there is this idea that he, he might be a very wealthy <laughs> person now uh, because of that. As you said, Bitcoin has existed for four years already, since 2009, but it has only really received much coverage in the last year, and especially since the start of this year, 2013. What do you put that down to? Well, I, I think it has a lot to do with media and very little to do with Bitcoin. It's been very fascinating to follow this. The first sort of media spike, media bubble was uh, last year, last summer. Bitcoin just started to get media attention. We started to get some bloggers wrote about it and, and, and some mainstream media outlets picked it up. and. What happens is that 
I have observed now, I've, I've learned a lot about how media works following this, is that one journalist sees this fascinating story with a great sort of mythical background and potential to change the world's um, financial system. And it also fits the current climate because people are disappointed with banks and disappointed uh, with a sort of mainstream economy. So any story that offers some kind of hope of alternatives or... Um, a technological solution to our social problems and sort of fits a need, I think, in the current media atmosphere. And so one journalist writes about it, others see that story, they start to write about it also. And it's a sort of, then it escalates from there. And the funny thing what then happens is that because more people hear about it, uh, and, and those people who hear about it, they try it out. They buy a few bitcoins. They give it a go. Um, but when they do that, of course, what happens? Because Bitcoin is not yet that big. Even a few more people brought into uh, try into it by media, media stories uh, cause the exchange rate to, to rise. And that generates more headlines. Bitcoin uh, is booming. The exchange rate is going up. And that attracts even more people. Um, who hope to make a quick buck by buying Bitcoin since it seems to be gaining value rapidly. And so this happened already last summer in a small scale. At some point then the story is saturated, media grows tired of it, they have to move on, next topic. So it lasts, you know, two, three, four weeks usually. And then what happens then is those people who bought Bitcoin as a sort of investment in order to hold it and then sell it on um, disinvest once the, the value has grown sufficiently they are disappointed because if the media stops writing about it then there are no more people coming in the exchange rate is not growing anymore it's that it, it, it stagnates and then they start disinvesting they want to get out of it okay i've seen this i want to get out and then what happens is a bust because everyone starts selling and and the the, the, the exchange rate crashes again. So this happened f uh, for the first time last summer, and now it happened again in uh, end of March, beginning of April this year. And this year uh, it was big on any measure. So the number of stories written in the media about Bitcoin, I've been following that number through Google News. So in January this year there were zero to one to two stories per day about bitcoin and that grew to dozens of stories in march until in early april there were if i remember correctly the date there were hundreds of stories every day every day hundreds of media outlets were writing about bitcoin and as a result uh, obviously the exchange rate soared like never before well then eventually it crashed but it didn't crash all the way down to, so it reached about uh, a value of about $200 per Bitcoin uh, at one point from starting from just a few dollars, $10 or $20 uh, before this boom. And then it crashed. Um, it's currently holding at around $100 per Bitcoin. Um, I read one of these many articles. It was something more skeptical about the Bitcoin bubble. This uh, writer described it more as, as you say, an investment as a stock right. rather than a currency, given that it's 
how it goes up and down so much and isn't really not as many places you can use it as a currency. It's more people are buying in as an investment rather than having any intention to use it as a currency. Is that well? That's what I was saying before the bubble crashed, and um, in a way, I think the events uh, showed that that my interpretation had some merit to it. So the value of a currency, if you think, you know, if we go to the fundamentals, the value of a currency depends on what you can buy with it. And so if you can buy a lot of things with a currency, a lot of people want that currency, then it's a very valuable currency. If you can't really use it for anything and no one is using it for anything, then it's not a very valuable currency. So sustainable growth in the value of currency like Bitcoin would come from people starting to use it in their everyday dealings to pay for things and also to accept it as payment for services rendered. And so this would be kind of sustainable demand for a currency. The other type of demand for a currency is where someone buys and holds it with no intention of actually using it there in, in their daily dealings, but just intending to hold it until the, the exchange value has grown sufficiently and then dump it to, to recoup a profit. And the media stories that were being written were usually saying that, well, the value of Bitcoin is soaring. You know, it's it doubled its value in one week. And you can imagine which type of person this kind of stories attract. So what then happened, and this is my, I based this on some of the data that's available and also some um, sort of qualitative accounts of people who I know and who I've talked to telling me what they actually did with the currency. So what happened was indeed that most of the great majority of people who then came into Bitcoin as new users, thanks to this media boom, they did so with the intention of speculating with it, not with the intention of using it as a medium of exchange. And so they created this unsustainable growth in value because this kind of speculative growth can only continue as long as there are more people, more speculators coming in. And once that stops, the speculators notice that the value is not growing anymore. They get disappointed. They start disinvesting. And since they were only holding it for the purpose of making a profit, uh, when that uh, purpose disappears, they, they offload it. And so by looking at... Um, not only the exchange rate and how that was developing, but also in how the number of transactions was growing and number of transactions also excluding uh, some of the, the, the foreign exchange that was going on. There's some sources of data that try to exclude that kind of transactions from the total transaction count. You could see that the, the actual usage, the transactions using Bitcoin were not growing nearly as fast as exchange rate was. So they, they were growing, but there wasn't any exponential growth. This observation and also the, you know, what people were telling me and what you could see on social media, people talking about how, well, I also bought some Bitcoin, I'm going to see if I, you know, if I can make a profit with it, this kind of story, led me to, to believe that we're not seeing an, expo an explosion in the use of Bitcoin for commerce, but in the use of Bitcoin for speculation. So although many people who have bought Bitcoin recently have done so out of curiosity due to the articles or looking to make a quick profit, some must be there using it properly. What kind of groups are using Bitcoin and what is it they use it for? Well, I would love to have some kind of a hard data on this. 
but it's uh, it's not possible to come by because people who accept Bitcoin as payment are generally not releasing numbers. They tend to be very fond of financial privacy. So obviously, there's some very famous uses of Bitcoin, which are which are drug trade and gambling and so on. So still so this kind of illegal or regulated activities where it's useful to have an untraceable currency so that authorities can't catch you. That kind of uses are obviously well known. Places like the Silk Road stuff. Like exactly. That. So they are they are this kind of not websites but Tor sites, hidden websites where it's possible to to use Bitcoin to buy drugs in your area. <laughs> but there isn't really much hard data on what are the sort of relative sizes of these different users. But there is actually someone did a very nice study of this uh, one particular drug trading site. And I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but there was some quite significant volume of uh, transactions that they were able to collect or record just by observing what's going on in the site. So they didn't have any access to any backend or anything. All they did was they were just looking at what was happening on the site and where it would sort of sum up the, the traffic and the amount of uh, transactions that were going on. So that's one use. And then obviously if we're talking about these uh, illegitimate uses, then there are things like money laundering. Then you can obfuscate the source of money by uh, you know, buying bitcoins with your dollars, then laundering those bitcoins in certain ways, and then transferring them back into US dollars, for example. There is tax evasion. I'm personally concerned about tax evasion because as you know, finally we are starting to be aware of the problem that companies organizations and also some individuals um, in the world are simply evading taxes and shirking taxes and this is a big social problem because it means that the rest of us have to pay more taxes to maintain essential services and maintain government and, and society so now that we're starting to recognize this is a problem and hopefully take action against tax havens and swiss bank accounts and, and so on it's kind of worrying that there is a new technical means then becoming available of hiding your transactions and hiding your balances it's kind of from the ultimate, legitimate authorities. Swiss bank. Yes, it's a it's a digital Swiss bank account, except without the Swiss. So there's no even the Swiss government couldn't open that data if they wanted to. But then of course we need to talk about how anonymous is Bitcoin actually, because now. Some people will take a lot of objection what we just said about, you know, Bitcoin being so anonymous, you know, it being very useful for criminal activity, because they would say that, well, actually, Bitcoin is less anonymous than commercial bank money, because every transaction that takes place is recorded in that public ledger, which every participant in the network has, right? So that's radical transparency. Now, the thing is that unless you can link those transactions to actual identities and then obviously that transaction data in itself is not useful and when you do something like you buy bitcoin using us dollars then that links your identity if you use let's say use your credit card so that links your credit card in principle at least if the 
payment processor or the, the, the marketplace that facilitates your purchase if they want to, they can record that data. They can link your credit card number with the Bitcoin key, as they call the account numbers. They can link them and that way sort of your anonymity in the Bitcoin network is compromised. But what you can then do is you can create multiple other basically Bitcoin accounts and you can move around money between accounts and you can move around money with let's say your friends and there are even what are called laundering services or mixers or tumblers which do this process for you so what they allow you to do is you put some money in many other people put money into that mixer as well mixer mixes them sends you back your money to a to a new account number that you've given them but the money that you get back it's not those same bitcoins that you put in every bitcoin is worth the same so it doesn't matter which ones you get back but you don't get the same ones back and that way the link between your identity and bitcoins that you have uh, is broken you get bitcoins that were bought by someone else somewhere else who doesn't know you and this way it's perfectly uh, feasible to create a very high level of anonymity. Do you ever see Bitcoin going more mainstream, I guess, in terms of being a common right. currency? Or is it going to be something like Bitcoin that isn't Bitcoin? Well, there, yeah, okay. Well, there's, there's two things, I think, that uh, limit Bitcoin's ability to become very mainstream. One is that despite these serious uh, abuses of the national currency system or national monetary system the national monetary systems they do still provide a lot of convenience for the ordinary consumer who is you know not so concerned about sort of more philosophical ideals which are important but then the ordinary consumer prioritizes their convenience and still it's you know, despite Bitcoin clients becoming easier to use and so on, it's still just more convenient, really. And there are people who disagree with me, but you know, my subjective assessment of the usability of these different payment systems is that it's just more convenient to use euros or pounds or dollars. If you receive your salary in that currency, it goes in your bank account. We have all this infrastructure built for those currencies. They're quite safe. If your bank account is hacked, it's the, the bank who will compensate you, so the risk is diffused. If your Bitcoin account is hacked, your key is stolen, you lose everything. And there, there is no recourse, and, and there's probably very little that law enforcement can do either, because authorities have been excluded from this system by design. So there are, I think, these very practical reasons why ordinary consumers will find it hard to transit well let's say they won't find many reasons uh, start using bitcoin instead of their national currency the second part of this series on bitcoin will be available later this week in that Vili Ledonverte will be back with me and we'll be discussing the philosophical and political implications of private currencies what it can teach
each existing systems and the immediate future of Bitcoin. For more from Pod Academy, visit the website at www.podacademy.org. Follow us on Twitter at Pod Academy and search for us on iTunes. At the moment, we have programs about the relationship between art and the Iraq war, 10 years on, a background to the ongoing Turkish protests and a discussion about the relevance of Christianity. Thanks for listening.